Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Emma Powell. How are you, Emma? Good, thanks. Excellent. Bradley Gerard, how are you, Bradley? I'm good, John. Thank you. Excellent. Ian Smith, how are you, mate? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Good. Not too bad at all. Okay, another manic week, as seems to be the norm these days. Lots of results this week. Kind of winding down now, but uh, this week marks the peak of the, the late results rush. Lots going on in news. And uh, Emma, you've written the cover feature this week, uh, yeah. which we're going to talk about, which is about M&A, yeah. which has uh, been a big theme of 2015. Before we uh, do that, let's uh, let's perhaps start with the news uh, at large this week in seven days. Bradley, what's been going on in the world? Yeah, I mean, I guess some, some interesting data that we covered in seven days was the um, euro jobs data. Unemployment fell to a three-year low of 10.7% in November, which beat forecasts of 10.8%. And that's quite interesting given what's going on as we speak now. Um, Mario Draghi has just dropped the deposit uh, rate from minus 0.2 to minus 0.3%, which effectively means if you're a bank in Europe and you park money with the ECB, it's costing you 0.03%. Wow. Or 0.3%. Doesn't sorry. sound very attractive. It doesn't sound very attractive, and that's the point, I guess. Um, you know, Draghi wants banks to lend to you know people and businesses in the economy to um, you know, restart inflation. And um, he's also, just as uh, we were coming down here, I had a look, he's extended the quantitative easing programme to at least March 2017. The deadline was September next year, uh, from memory. Um, he's extended that and done a few other things as well. He wants some inflation in the Eurozone, so that's quite an interesting thing, obviously coming to the end of the year and thinking of next year you know will we see a bit more return to inflation well Mario Draghi is certainly trying his best yeah well he needs to stoke up some demand so it does, week. each round of QE does seem to have less of an impact on the market so it'll be interesting to see obviously the European equities have done very well off the back of the quantitative easing kind of free money easy money that's been going to the markets there but you wonder how much impact this round latest round is going to have yeah, it's certainly what we saw from US QE that uh, the impact was, was slightly less every time so uh, yes good yeah. luck uh, Mr. Draggy. Yep, absolutely. Okay, what else we've got going on? I think a very, another interesting story. Obviously, the, the banks, uh, uh, stocks that our readers and listeners of this podcast are quite keen on, and, and all of them, although albeit two, kind of limped across the line, but they all passed the Bank of England's uh, stress tests. Um, RBS and Standard Chartered were the, were the weakest runners, so to speak, but they're doing enough to kind of please the Bank of England. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, Ian, you would have looked at this in a bit of detail this week, being a banking correspondent. Um, and we didn't give it a massive amount of coverage in the magazine. But we did update RBS tip. Yes, we have three tips at the moment um, that this affects. RBS, uh, Barclays and Lloyds. As Bradley said, they all came through. Uh, RBS uh, scraped over the line, uh, to use your expression. Because of steps it was already taking to improve its capital, it was not required to submit a revised capital plan uh, following the stress test. Now, as Bradley points out in seven days, the stress test was based on an emerging markets crisis. Mm-hmm. So Lloyd's, for example, did very well. Uh, that's perhaps not surprising considering Lloyd's is very exposed to the domestic market. So what they didn't do was um, model a crisis on a uh, UK property crash, for example. So those uh, banks that are especially exposed to emerging markets, such as Standard Charter, which was the other bank that would have failed were it not for the capital raising that it is also doing that also struggled a little bit but I suppose the point that I get into in the tip update a bit is that actually for RBS for example the capital um, side of things has been improving for a while with the disposal of its, of its North American bank citizens it is making progress there there are other problems for the banks 
but we should view this as a really it's kind of a reasonably historic thing in, in that the Bank of England now thinks the risks in the financial sector have moved to the emerging markets and that the banking industry is rather well capitalised so you can see it as a kind of a bit of a watershed moment but I suppose if they do a slightly different kind of, uh, kind of stress test next year it may show up different weaknesses. Okay so that, I mean, that all sounds like good news. As you mentioned, we've got a number of banks on uh, on buy tips. How does the how does this result affect our views on uh, on the sector as a whole? Well, we've got. Barclays and RBS that we have on buy tips, we have tipped them as kind of uh, on restructure plays that they are continuing to reduce their risk-weighted assets to improve their kind of capital base. So this very much feeds into what we've been looking at. So RBS is continuing to do exactly what we wanted it to do, albeit that buy tip is still underperforming. So what we need to come back at the banks, I suppose, is more of the kind of income. We need to, the focus is now on the top line. So we're going to have to see progress of these uh, straightened banking operations and the same for Barclays too that had that initial uh, strength under Anthony Jenkins it was doing what we wanted it to do Barclays has also fallen back a little bit on the markets and there's uh, there's question marks among investors as to the direction of that bank especially its investment banking operations and today Barclays sold off its Italian retail branch network um, but has retained its corporate banking and investment banking operations in Italy so we, we're seeing the continuing disposal of non-core assets which is helping the banks on capital, which is crucially helping them on dividends. And that's something that's important uh, when we look at banks coming back as those old income plays of old. And Lloyds is a company that we have on a buy tip in expectation that it will have the capital headroom to start paying higher dividends again. So we think they might be coming back Okay, we might be waiting a bit longer for RBS to pay a dividend, though. <laughs> we might be waiting, but hopefully not not quite so long for the shares to uh, to get back to where we tip them. Exactly right. Okay. Thanks. What else we got going on, Bradley? Well, I guess on the theme of income, one thing I mentioned very quickly is um, BHP Billiton. It's obviously a very big stock that a lot of our readers will probably will be keen followers of. And um, our you know, commodities reporter, uh, Mark Robinson, he's kind of drawn a bit of attention to the this ongoing situation um, that BHP has in Brazil. The Brazilian government is effectively looking to, to sue BHP and for the Vale. the dam collapse. Yeah, for the dam collapse in Brazil. The event itself was also very tragic and it, there's a lot of work needs to be done to sort of help repair the community. But from an investor's perspective, I suppose the one thing really that needs to be watched, which Mark talks about in the IC view section, is the fact that the shares now carry a 9.8% dividend yield. Um, a management has said that it's confident it can continue to keep paying its dividend in the same mm. way, which it has done, yeah, exactly. But the shares are down about a fifth in the past month. It's, um, it's quite a, a, a large fall. and Actually, I think it's kind of gone... Not under the radar, but a fall of that magnitude is big, and the dividend yield that high now is um, something to be mindful of. Yeah, value trap springs to mind, potentially. Potentially um, so. Yeah, I would be ultra-cautious with any any play on the, the, the mining sector at the moment, uh, possibly even more so than it would be on the oil and gas sector. Mm. Interesting story. Yeah, but you've got something in the news section this week, uh, yeah, yeah, social care. Right. Yeah. Tell us about this one. The kind of care in the home providers, the main ones would be Mighty and Mears, and that sector's really struggling at the moment, and it's not because budgets are being cut. They're actually increasing, but they're not increasing as much as needed, i.e. with the ageing population. So I was actually speaking to the CEO of Mears, and he was telling me about a lot of the the kind of administration being very paper-based still, which was quite shocking to me the way like the rounds are divvied up and things like that for care workers and this is for you know big contractors like Mears that actually say the care workers being paid eight pounds 
Mears has a few pounds on top of that for profit and the rest is just going on this administration. It seems yeah. incredibly wasteful. And I think he was getting quite frustrated about the fact that the NHS and social services, obviously, their their budgets are separate and their departments are separate and it makes it very difficult, I think, for people doing the job to actually know about what the information is from the doctor to what they need to do as a care worker and... Actually, they've they've just won very recently um, contracts with Milton Keynes and earlier this year with uh, Torbay and South Devon local authorities where they've actually done this joined up kind of NHS, local authority, so social services, um, actually working together with Mears to deliver it. But I think his impression was that a few years ago when they actually took on care work at the request of local authorities, he had the impression that it would be a lot faster, this kind of integrating of services, and it just, like, it's still really lacking at the moment. Yeah, big government IT projects, uh, they're mm. notoriously uh, well, slow yeah. to, to get yeah. moving and uh, notoriously prone to ending in absolute disaster mm. as well. But I mean, I would have thought it was, you know, me is, is in pole position to perhaps drive some of that change that's needed. Oh, yeah, and I mean, he says he's been urging, <laughs> urging some of the local authorities to actually take this approach because it's a lot easier if you can share information and just councils being quite slow to Mm. change isn't exactly a surprise to anybody is it see this is quite an interesting story it ties in with a feature you wrote uh, a couple of weeks back carve up about the role of outsourcing in the delivery of of public services i mentioned both mighty and mears in that respect and the fact that delivering care in the home is is not very profitable at the moment no. or efficient for the people no, but we, we, well, you have to serve we, we got a bit of abuse as a result of that oh, feature yes, on the basis did. that we were seen as advocating that the kind of sell-off of public services and the profiteering from, from local government but it sounds like the private outsourcing industry could actually add a lot of value to the way public services are delivered and I yeah. we, we felt it was a bit unfair the, the flack we got I, I did particularly I tried to get across the point that this was from an investment perspective and I was not advocating the outsourcing nor was I criticising it I was stating the investment cases but yes I did get some flack via Twitter for that so indeed which was fun (laughs) but no I mean as I said I you know I'm in the same position I think you know where where outsourcing is done well in the public sector it can it can definitely improve the way I mean there are a lot of pitfalls but at the same time yeah it it can deliver a a good service at the same time so Mm. well we can expect some more flack for saying that here we go here we go Black Friday, do we really want to talk about Black Friday, give Black Friday any more airtime than it's already had, which is far too much? Yeah, let's not do that. Um, uh, yeah, it's still a good story, ridiculous. a good reader, a good overview by uh, Theron and Harriet, but yeah, um, listeners, go and have a, have a read on the website or in the magazine. Otherwise, I guess um, a little, little tidbit in seven days, which is interesting, um, the kind of quarterly rebalancing of the FTSE is oh. upon us. Actually, WM Morrison has fallen out of the FTSE 100. It's not been there quite surprise. a long time, I think, but obviously the recent kind of troubles... Um, I recent- believe, actually, I was just reading uh, today that G4S has yeah. also fallen out. Yeah, Again, so yeah. There, there, there is an outsourcer that perhaps gives the rest <laughs> of them a bad name, or has given the rest of them a bad yeah. name in the past. Yeah. No, G4S yeah. is mentioned in the piece, and apparently I think Megit as well uh, fell out. And um, an interesting promotion in FTSE 100 is World Pay, which only actually IPOs quite recently. Um, it's not in even the FTSE 250 yet, but it's performed so well since its IPO, it's going straight into the FTSE 100. So 
that's an interesting move as well. And again, that, that kind of reflects a trend that we talked about in a feature God, it's quite some time ago now, but about the, the changing methods of payments. And, yeah, exactly. uh, and Theron wrote that, yeah, at the end of Cash. Uh, yeah, and yeah, no, I, I played oh, into that. you did that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so hey, sorry, I no, put my sorry, hand sorry, up sorry. Here, Bradley. Um, the reason I thought it relevant for, to jump in there was that Delarue um, came out and said that its banknote production, it was going to reduce its production, which Emma covers that company, yeah, but that very much feeds into the same trend. Cutting their production lines in half. Mm. That's a sell tip. It has gone the right way. It's gone the right way for, for I'm saying sell, but not the right way for people invested in it. No, no. Do you think they're, um, I mean, they're going to have to change their business model? Somewhat. Well, they are. They're going much more into kind of um, passports. They already produce passports, but um, security and identity products. I mean, to be fair, actually, I met with the, the CEO a while back now and he was very aware of the fact that the security and identity was where the future was mm. sounds yeah sounds about right yeah. given this uh, uncertain world that we we live in which has become a little bit more uncertain in the last couple of days yeah well we're talking about companies i mean let's let's talk about some results you know what i said was we're gonna we're gonna pick our favorite and i don't i don't get to do that because i don't, I don't write them emma let's start with you so what was the result that caught your eye this week probably Pennon, which does owns Virador, obviously Waste Management Virador, and also Southwest Water. So I always see Pennon as the best water stock. That they you know they're they're really good for kind of reliable income, the water stocks. But with Pennon, it's been held back in the past by Virador, which has obviously kind of felt the decline of landfill and things like that but they've been dialing down their landfill contracts and they've been uh, setting up these energy recovery facilities and I think it was something like it was over a hundred percent revenue growth for Virador during the first half which is great for them so yeah. we've also got them on a buy tip so that, that yeah. really reaffirms that how's that doing yeah oh it's up on our buy tip lovely and delivering a Big fat yield as well, like you say. Oh, yeah, exactly. that was a lot of the kind of reason behind the, the tip. Yeah. Um, by contrast, Seven Trent was the other water company that you, you would have covered this week. Oh, the shares look like they're doing a well. We're less keen on these, aren't we? To be fair, all the water companies are pretty good and they all deserve a, deliver a pretty good dividend yield. But um, the, the water companies have their business plans approved for the next five years from until 2020. Um, and off what kind of Seven Trent got the least favourable kind of outcome from that which meant they had to cut their dividend at the time which obviously United Utilities nor Pennon did they have to do that so that's kind of we would say that as the weaker one seven trend okay Bradley lots of results from you this week what yeah was, what was your pick of the bunch it was a busy one I guess I guess I'd be remiss not to mention Green King really given the shares were up about 13% I think on the day that's spectacular yeah, I mean, I think. Result, um, I mean, on results day, that's yeah, highly unusual. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it was a good set of numbers. I mean, it's important to remember that the headline numbers include its recent acquisition of Spirit Pubco. So, Spirit's obviously that business is doing very well, and Green Kings acquired it, and it seems like a shrewd move. There was underlying growth of Green Kings of own estate as well, so that's promising, and maybe that's what helped drive the shares. That you know the growth wasn't just coming from the acquisition, but there's still organic uh, movement there as well. And I guess it's a it's an interesting stock. I actually decided to move it to um, a, a buy because um, I think there's enough kind of still going on there that makes it interesting. So 
the group's going to be rationalising the number of brands. They have about 20 different pub brands between the combined group does. They want to halve that. They want to really focus on their kind of real, what they see as their real growth brands. And um, they introduced a lot of um, initiatives to try and, uh, you know, gain revenue and profit before 5pm. So the whole sort of breakfast and foods during the day thing, which has really become important for the pub groups to be, you know, not just have a pint in the evening. They, they want you there. Have for a pint dinner. in the morning as have well. In the morning as well. <laughs> but that's a really important trend. I think is that pub groups really need to make sure they are, you know, earning money at, at all times of the day. And it seems like Green King's been able to start doing that much better. Absolutely, sweat the estates. Exactly. Sweat the estate. And uh, an old favourite of mine had some good results this week. Cranswick. Do you know what? I was just toying whether to mention that as well because um, it was a good result. Um, again, acquisition um, comes into it. Um, the Cranswick historically obviously very focused, or pretty much entirely focused on pork products, um, and last year bought Benson Park, which is a poultry uh, producer. Um, that's worked out very well. Um, from speaking to a few people, because I'm actually writing a feature which does mention Cranswick, I won't sort of elaborate much more because you can read it in a couple of weeks' time. But um, Cranswick to sort of go into chicken is or poultry is very good. It's sort of serving a lot more of the um, food to go sector in the UK, which is mm. growing thanks to that. And a key thing for Cranswick, and again, a, a reason why um, it went on a buy, again, I put it on a buy from a hold, was just because the um, the potential for Cranswick to grow its overseas sales is huge. Um, the export sales to the Far East rose 17%. And at the moment, all it's really doing is selling into places like China. And that's and pork. That's kind of, yeah, 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 this is pork, really. Um, selling into places like China, um, what the company calls fifth quarter products, so things that the Western the bits we won't eat, the bits basically. we won't eat. Yes, yeah. so they're yeah. just doing that, and yet the, the amount of the amount they're exporting is really, really growing fast. So, if there is um, demand in the Far East for more Westernized style products like ham, bacon, sausages, Cranswick is very well placed to serve that demand. Okay, there's a disgusting ad I keep seeing on television, which uh, is for some travel company, and they're advertising it by showing a man eating a uh, snacks chicken foot somewhere in China. It's absolutely <laughs> foul. Maybe there's a bit of chicken they can they can ship as well maybe <laughs> that we won't eat. Here. Yeah, maybe there's some chicken fifth quarters as well. Absolutely. Okay, but Cranswick is a, is a great company. I used to like that before I became a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a very a very good stock. Um, a good good decision. It seems to buy Benson Park. Um, it's you know it it sort of is a good well on the sort of subject I suppose of um, merger masters. Yeah, you know. we'll come on to that in a minute. We're two companies there who've uh, had successful acquisitions. <laughs> Ian. Before we move on to the to the cover feature, let's uh, let's quickly get your uh, your pick of the results this week. So uh, one good, one bad. One good, one bad. Okay, good. Uh, Brewing Dolphin, uh, which upped its dividend, and it, and the reason that uh, the Brewing Dolphin one is interesting is that the wealth managers have been doing very well, uh, but Brewing Dolphin has really suffered since the summer, and I think it dawned on everyone that revenues of wealth managers, especially those with commission um, based revenue as part of their fee income, um, have will suffer because of the market drawdowns. But Bruin Dolphin, you know, ended up um, for these results uh, running it on earnings basis at, at, at a discount to the rest of the wealth managers, um, but with a bigger dividend yield once it had upped its dividend. So um, no surprise that the, the uh, share price went up on results day and again up today, another 6% last time I checked. So that was good for them and the way that they're changing that business and moving more towards discretionary fund management, which is where a lot of wealth managers are going because it's more consistent fee revenue. Uh, and it's lower cost to actually provide. They say that the, the margins are not so different between the two of them, but with discretionary, the asset's quite sticky. You tend to keep it, and also they pay out on more of a kind of regular fee income. 
but it, it yeah th- that we'll have to see more of that as it goes on at the moment a lot of the uh, wealth managers have a mix um but we in some ways favor the discretionary wealth managers as as um, investments yeah as in, as investments yeah and, and then the bad result uh, was uh, aberdeen mm. um which just continues to be in some ways, part of the same story, uh, this flight from emerging markets, the, the three months to September was a worse uh, quarter for outflows from the asset class uh, since the financial crisis. So really bad period of uh, investors getting spooked, primarily in Asian equities and getting out. And that's really hurting everybody. It also seems to be hurting, like other managers, from sovereign wealth funds in oil-dependent economies. Uh, sovereign wealth funds t- yeah, kind of taking money out to support domestic economies. That was also mentioned by Martin Gilbert on that call. So it's a very interesting time for uh, uh, for Aberdeen. The FT ran a story saying that uh, the CEO was courting potential acquirers for the business. This was robustly rejected uh, by Mr. Gilbert on the uh, on the morning results call. They you know, say so they're very much not interested in being uh, bought bought out. But yeah, the question for Aberdeen is just how much lo- lower can it go? Yeah, so we're not advocating buying at the moment, but we're not advocating selling either. We're not. We've we've copped out slightly. I mean, it, it, it's a big. It would be a big contrarian emerging markets call to buy back into Aberdeen. There's lots of good long-term reasons to be cheerful about the business, but it's still uh, very much uh, suffering from investor sentiment that does not look to be shifting. So it's a brave person to say we think that's going to come back strongly. Yeah, I mean, my own view is that you know is that emerging markets will in the long term still be a good place to have some exposure and i'm sure aberdeen will eventually benefit from that but yeah we could be waiting quite a while yeah they they say it's a cyclical downturn in emerging markets and that it will come back and, and not only that they're diversifying the business into other areas of alternatives such as private equity they've done acquisitions to improve their distribution such as the parmenian acquisition that we've discussed on this podcast before mm, so this is a robo advisor isn't it well yeah it, what it does is allows ifas to outsource their investment management and provides kind of risk graded portfolios so that's somewhere where the managers fund managers really try to make sure that they've got a good distribution tunnel into this uh, retail market. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting I think um, stuff. Aberdeen was also, there was another story I think this week that it might be um, in the running for a big US bond house called Roger Capital or Roger Capital. Um, so yeah, as Ian says, I mean, it's working hard to diversify its business, but it will be interesting to see how that pans out. Okay. Let's move on from uh, results, and there are lots of them in this week's magazine. As we've heard, uh, a couple of those uh, companies are, are on the acquisition trail. In fact, all of them seem to be on the acquisition mm. trail somewhere th- along the line. This year has been an absolute monster of a year for, uh, for M&A, which I talk about in my editorial this week. Uh, there have been, to date this year, $4.6 trillion worth of deals, and that's as much as the previous year as a whole. So we've got a month to go, and uh, the record has already been surpassed from 2007. Most of those deals, 40%, are over $10 billion in value. So lots of mega deals going on. And mega deals scare the living daylights out of us. <laughs> hard to do, hard to bash big companies together. Certainly lots of evidence to suggest they can be value destructive. But we're looking at it from a slightly different angle, aren't we, Emma? Yes, well, I mean, obviously, just day to day, we, we hear so much about acquisitions every single day from all sorts of companies. But... Um, I guess it kind of got me thinking, well, how do you actually, as an investor, try and value whether a, or try and spot whether an acquisition is going to be good or bad for mm. a company, whether it's going to be earnings creative or destroy shareholder value? Um, and as you mentioned, obviously, the bigger deals can be, can be a disaster. And there's so many 
disaster stories but there are also a lot of companies that are doing it well and so obviously I kind of wanted to look at um, companies that are doing more kind of bolt-on acquisitions and growing that way um, and, and just try and look at you know some of the the ways that I guess you can you can spot whether a acquisition is going to be good or bad yeah. for so a company. So a bolt-on deal, we would tend to view as something that's a lot smaller than the yes, company that's yeah, buying yeah. it. Um, what sort of other characteristics might we expect from, from a so-called um, bolt-on? From a bolt-on, so it could be, well, it, well, it, it should be um, very complementary to the acquirer. So Charles Taylor is an example of a, a company that kind of follows this strategy where they look to acquire companies that are obviously in the insurance sec- sector um, where they can cross-sell um, their services between clients. Lake House is another one where they buy very similar. They actually service the social housing sector, another outsourcer. Um, but they basically, <laughs> uh, basically um, kind of make acquisitions to increase their kind of coverage over the country and again they kind of cross sales so that's another one so like infilling basically so yeah, yeah infilling yeah, exactly. with regions that they don't cover or yeah, products regions that they don't or, have yeah yeah because they've got this ready-made client base which might be like well you know can we we'd like to get this service off you which we currently get off someone else and it's easier to just get it off the same person so there's that aspect of bolt-ons. And I guess that brings scale benefits as well. So yeah, exactly. Kind of all duplicated costs can be yeah. taken out. And it's much cost easier to... synergies d- is another one. Yeah. yeah. Although that shouldn't be... I don't think that should be your motivation for making an acquisition. No, and often that's what some of the bigger deals will, will justify themselves yeah. on. So, and you know... That's not... Huge companies bashing themselves together and talking about yeah. billions of dollars or pounds worth of cost savings. And that does often seem to be the only rationale for some of these, these very large deals. Yeah. Uh, but we think we're thinking more strategically. Yes, definitely more strategically. Um, you know, for a lot of companies, I know DS Smith is one, one of Daniel Alberto's companies, um, is they've kind of gone further into Europe to kind of, you know, once they've saturated the UK market to, and I guess a lot of companies do this, to sell their services abroad. And I guess they get more diversified that way also for rent-a-kill. They're, they're actually like an ideal kind of example of bolt-on acquisition growth strategy because they're going a lot more into kind of Latin America and um, a lot more of the emerging markets to, well, I guess do pest control and those kinds of things because mm-hmm. they see that as a high growth area. So they're definitely motivated by moving into new geographies. Is there a risk um, when a company does that, that they go into a geography that they don't fully understand? There's definitely a risk. And another thing that you've got to make sure is where companies go into a new geography because they think we're, we're going to follow our customers. You've definitely got to make sure that actually you have a sustainable customer base over there. Yeah. And, you know, you're not just, you know, a company's not just looking at maybe one or two large clients they have and then thinking we'll pick up more. You've really got to know that there's a large client base there that it's going to sustain growth. Okay. So, but I guess what you want, to see as well is management of the acquiring business who who've kind of done this before. They're oh yeah, exactly. Practitioners of of, of the, the small bowls on deal know how to do due diligence, know what they're looking for. So management yeah. management must be very important in all this. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, again, this is why we try to give a lot of examples of people doing it right. Mm. Track record obviously is something that you're going to look at. People that have experience with doing a lot of bolt on deals. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. You've got several examples here. I mean, give us an example uh, from the feature uh, and, and tell us how, how it's getting it right. For example, um, this was a bit of a um, an odd one that I chose, but Staffline. Okay. You know, they're not necessarily, um, you know, the most highly acquisitive company, but obviously they're an outsourcer. So the next round of contracts that are being tendered next year, what they've done is they offer welfare to work programs. So they've made... More outsourcing. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so they've they've acquired A4E and they acquired Avanta. And they're trying to... Because scale is so key, what they've done is made these big acquisitions. So they now, they now are the largest provider at the moment, which means they've got a far greater chance of acquiring more work when the next round of tenders yeah, yeah. are put out. So that was just kind of like an example in a sector. Um, Ian actually gave a very good example in his sector of uh, Chesonara and Phoenix. I don't know if he just no, wants go on, Ian, to... Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, they're also a strange example, but being zombie life uh, book consolidators, what they do is buy up kind of closed life business. Um, and the reason that it's interesting to look at those uh, at the moment... First, I mean, they're incredibly high di- uh, dividend playing stock. They both um, pay about 6% dividend, but in which they pay for with these uh, with the cash that is generated out of these books that they buy. So it's very important that these companies continue to buy to support that dividend. That's really the point of them as stocks. Um, but Solvency 2, which comes in in January, um, a lot of the insurers have been forced to do a lot of work to get through that as we've covered in the past but also post the introduction of solvency to a lot of people are predicting more consolidation in that market so more of these closed life insurance books will be up for sale and these uh, phoenix especially is very hungry for more acquisitions and so is chesnara um and, and so they are you know look out for them trying to do deals next year which will help them to grow um grow their book and, and ultimately support that dividend Good, good stuff. We like a bit of, bit of income there. Yeah. Um, I mean, you also give some examples of companies who've not gone about acquisitions yeah, in the right way. I don't think you could do an M and A feature without mentioning some of the horror stories. Um, so I decided to kick it off with RBS. Um, yeah, well, just that was to a- say, just to say, obviously, you know, not to contradict. You know, we think it's this is M and A of the past. Yeah, well, that's uh, the mega deal gone bad. The med- um, mega deal gone bad with AMB Amro. But then, you know, um, what we're saying is the bolt-on approach is not necessarily a panacea either. It's not. It's not the always going to deliver the goods no. uh, if it's not done in the right way. And you give the example of what is now called Watchstone, but was formerly called Quindell. Well, Quindell, I mean. I'm sure readers know a lot about Quindell. But mm. um, obviously, yeah, that's a case study in a company which is making acquisitions. Um, and I think, you know, really the growth actually isn't there. And, and a big thing that I wanted to reiterate, um, and maybe it sounds quite simple, but I think often there's a temptation to look at kind of revenue and operating profit and just use those as a measure of financial health when really I think it needs to be wrapped home a lot. And it might sound simple, but cash is king. I know that's a cliche, but it really no. is. Um, we all need reminding of that. Cash and debt. Look at those. Like It can't be said enough. Um, because that was the big lesson with the banks, as we all know from the financial crisis, right? That these acquisitions, and you made the 
the um, obvious example of RBS, they massively grow the balance sheet, you know, far stripping the amount of equity they have on the on the balance sheet. So when property market values fall or where the values of some of those assets fall, there's less equity to cover it. So actually in our banking coverage, we put in a leverage ratio, which is a bit of a crude measure, but it's to kind of look at that exact thing that you're talking about. What kind of risk is being built up on the balance sheet? Mm. But, but in Quindell's case, it was it was well, buying all Quindell, these businesses. The, the, it was buying so many businesses. And actually, Philip Ryland, our associate editor, did a great piece, actually. People should look it up. It's called the Quindell Conundrum. It won an award. It did win an award. And yeah, it's, it's great. And it was about, um, basically, the real issue was um, the revenue recognition and the fact that if you're buying so many companies and then you're then, for those companies, kind of booking the revenue long before the... The cash comes the, in. The cash has come in. Yeah. Which, I mean, I write about sports services, and there are a lot of companies that do this. But the fact is, is when you're growing so fast, the lag between booking revenue and the cash, the lag gets greater and greater. And this is one of the big problems with Quindell. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> with that one, needless to say, we don't advise investors buy that. No, no. Well, it's a slightly different company now, but uh, I must it admit is, I haven't yes, looked at it of since. Of course, it's, it's Watchstone now, and but I it, know they've got a new CEO and everything indeed. who's definitely trying to... I was just reading through, obviously, the most recent training statements. He's definitely trying to improve governance and things like that. So, Well, couldn't we'll be see more, how uh, that one goes. More, more welcome. Emma, thank you very much. Uh, it's a really interesting feature. We, you know, when we've done acquisition M and A features in the past, we've always gone on the sort of who's going to get bought approach. And I think this is this is almost more interesting because that's kind of speculative. This is is really really how to spot the acquirers. You know, companies that that are good at this and can, mm-hmm. can you know keep acquiring without stretching themselves and, and keep the margins growing and the profits growing. Actually, yeah. it's it's a really good way to grow a business, complementing organic growth. So uh, yes, yeah. have a look at this merger masters Tetris based cover sure yeah i like that yes stroke (laughs) of genius from the design studio there Uh, we were we were bamboozled with this one okay and that pretty much wraps up this week's podcast lots more in the issue like i said lots of results john barron is back this week he's talking about uh, his japanese exposure He's actually topping up there. He thinks uh, that Arbe's third arrow is starting to take effect and that we could see a lot more uh, lot more strong returns to come from that market out there. He's particularly interested in the fact that Japanese companies are sitting on lots and lots of cash. So we might start seeing some, uh, some dividend distributions uh, increasing from there. Lots in the comments section, lots more in the news section, including a good piece from Alex on uh, consolidation potential in the oil industry, talking of M&A. And Harriet's obviously written a bit in your feature about yeah, healthcare, healthcare M&A, which, which is, is again, is mental. The, $600 billion less, this year. kind of, yeah, less bolt-on, more massive deals yeah, side. Well, we've had uh, Pfizer Allergen announced, that's what, $160 billion? Yeah. yeah it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Mind-boggling. Mm. And uh, as I said, lots in the comments section, Dillo, Bearball, Simon Thompson and The Trader pick up the magazine. Uh, all good news agents. Merger Masters, £4.50. And I'll see you all again next week. Thanks, everybody.